You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about somatic symptom and related disorders. Joining me is Dr. Samuel Neher, a pediatric hospitalist also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me on. So while we're talking about somatic symptom and related disorders, or SSRDs, which are a group of conditions characterized by troublesome physical or somatic symptoms that arise because of problems in the way that the body and nervous system communicate. There are many types of SSRDs that are named based on the symptoms or the body system affected. So listeners may be familiar with some of these already, such as Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Syndrome, or AMPS. There's some others that you may know as well, Functional Abdominal Pain, or Functional Neurologic Disorder, which we previously called Conversion Disorder, or Psychogenic Non-Epileptic Seizures, previously known as Pseudoseizures. So while we may have heard some of these names before, some are new to us, and I'm really glad that you could be here today to help us sort that out. Now, Most people will experience somatic symptoms in their lifetime. For example, things like butterflies in your stomach before a public speaking event. When, though, do we consider these somatic symptoms to be a disorder? Well, first off, Katie, I want to say how honored I am to be on your great podcast on behalf of our Pathway team. There's a bunch of people that have worked really hard on this material for the past year, and and we're thankful for the spotlight. And before I answer, I also want to caveat for your listeners that I'm not presenting myself as an expert psychiatrist or a researcher on somatic symptom disorders, more of a clinician with a strong interest in this over the years. And thanks to the work of a lot of great experts has been able to put together a lot of tips and strategies that have worked for me and for others. So you asked when somatic symptoms become a disorder. And the word somatic comes from the Greek word soma, meaning the body. And so somatic symptoms are just symptoms pertaining to the body. Butterflies in the stomach is a great example. Crying in response to emotions is another example. And and I think everyone has experienced those. Mm -hmm. But we talk about somatic symptom disorder when these symptoms become chronic and disruptive enough that they interfere with function. And so the DSM has a definition, of course, that involves excessive thoughts, feelings, or behaviors related to the somatic symptoms or associated health concerns, with the state of being symptomatic being persistent, typically at least six months, with one or more symptoms being distressing or resulting in a significant disruption of daily life. But you know, this area of medicine is constantly shape-shifting and finding new diagnostic names and codes. And so I think of somatic symptoms in my practice a bit more broadly than the hard diagnostic criteria, trying to recognize that, you know, a child who has missed school for four months, for example, due to somatic symptoms is definitely suffering from dysfunction, even if not technically meeting the diagnostic criteria yet. And that's a really helpful way for you to frame this discussion for us. And thank you for acknowledging that you're part of a bigger team at CHOP, as well as many specialists who weren't involved in the new clinical pathway, which we'll talk about, um, but take care of patients at CHOP who have somatic symptoms. And we're lucky to work in a place with so many people with expertise in this area. 
Now, on that note, I did talk previously with Dr. Sherry and Gamuka about AMPS, and they emphasized that often children with AMPS have had their pain dismissed by many healthcare providers before they arrive to the CHOP AMPS clinic, and that a big part of the initial treatment that they do is validating the pain of the patients. And in your experience, I'm just wondering, are children with SSRDs often told that they're faking it? (laughs) Yeah, that's another really awesome question. I would say first that every patient's journey towards this diagnosis is really unique. And while it's true that many patients have had bad experiences in our or other healthcare systems, there's also some who've come with a really great understanding of the mind-body connection due to great providers they've met along the way. What I will say is that I doubt that there are many doctors using blatantly dismissive terms these days, like it's all in your head, I think is the classic example. Mm -hmm. And yet, patients are still coming away with this impression. And so why is that? And this is speculation, but my sense is that the lack of a shared mental model and language around these disorders often really just results in a really awkward conversation that the patient may come away from feeling like the doctor was dancing around an uncomfortable topic. And you got to remember, our patients have the same unconscious biases that we do. And if they're told what their symptoms are not, for example, they're not organic, they're not pathological, they're not indicative of a biological process or, or all those other terms we use, but they're not told what the symptoms are, they're going to try to fill in the blank themselves. And they're going to assume sometimes they're being told they're faking. So if there's one thing I really want to drive home about somatic symptom disorder communication, it's tell your patients what their symptoms are, not just what they're not. That's a great point. And that's why we're doing this education today is to focus on some of the communication skills that providers can use with patients and to alert them to a new clinical pathway at CHOP. Because as you mentioned, it's often not a lack of understanding about the topic. It's just that we sometimes don't have the right tools to help us navigate encounters with these patients. And so that's what your team has helped offer us. So in this communication skills focus that we're talking about, how are you explaining an SSRD to a patient and their family in a way that's empathic? (laughs) Well, now I'm getting really excited because um, (laughs) communication is really my favorite part of all this. It can be such an amazingly positive force. It's, you know, I truly don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's the magic one that can make everything better. And it's the closest I've been able to experience as a doctor is sort of a you know a miracle that changes everything. Mm-hmm. And so over the past year, I've had the privilege to be part of this multidisciplinary group involving emergency medicine, primary care, psychiatry, hospital medicine, psychology, rehab, and rheumatology with the goal of developing this clinical pathway and, and language that would be empathic and, and helpful to the patients. And so for anyone who's seen any of CHOP's pathways before, this one will feel a little different. And that's because it's not really a clinical decision support tool guiding clinicians to you know what tests to order or, or which treatment modalities to start. It's actually really intended to serve as a as a guide to disclose and discuss suspicion of somatization. And so the big paradigm shift that we're trying to bring forward is that we as providers need to change our view of somatic symptom disorders from disorders that are considered, you know, rule out diagnoses to diagnoses that can be ruled in and disclosed to families and patients as part of the differential diagnosis, even if workup is still ongoing. And I'll get to the, you know, communication tips in a second, but 
just to drive that point home, one analogy I, I like to use is this one. So, you know, let's say you're a primary care doctor, an ER doctor, and a three-year-old with a history of three weeks of daily fevers and weight loss and looking pale walks into the office. As a pediatrician, and definitely on a board's question or a step one question, that, that's a really concerning story for malignancy. Mm-hmm. But in the real world, of course, malignancy isn't the only thing on the differential. And we all hope for the sake of this hypothetical child that it's actually back-to-back viruses and poor PO. Mm-hmm. But having said that, when you talk to the families, most thoughtful pediatricians I know are going to discuss with the family that malignancy is on the differential, even if it's the scary thing no one wants to think about, and even if it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. And communication about SSRDs is the same to me. If it's on the differential, you need to tell the families you're concerned about it, even if it's not the only thing on the differential. Because oftentimes, uh, children with Organic biological illnesses will also have somatic symptoms, and they can be affirmed and treated alongside the organic disease, which is why, you know, many patients with IBD, for example, may also have functional abdominal pain, or why children with epilepsy can also have non-epileptic seizures or events or, or attacks. And sometimes I think we stay away from discussing somatization if there's a known biological illness, but there's really helpful tools for the somatic symptom component once you kind of build it into your toolkit and your framework as a provider. So after that detour, getting back to your question about how to explain it in an empathic manner, I'd say that the one thing you can't get around is time. Mm -hmm. These conversations take time to do well, and I acknowledge that depending on your setting, you know, you may not always have that. So what we put together is a sort of communication tip sheet that is sort of like the the highlights to hit on. And I'm going to present them in a certain order, but these conversations really aren't always linear. And so you may have to jump back and forth depending on the interaction. So finally, getting to it, step one is to really affirm the symptom and their impact. So after taking a really good history, affirm the symptoms and recap the impact that they've had on the child's life. Uh, Usually that involves missing school or activities they love. Mm -hmm. Step two is naming the diagnosis. So using the words somatic symptom disorder and explaining their meaning. Somatic is not a bad word. And depending on the specific presentation, you might use more specific language like functional abdominal pain or or psychological non-epileptic seizures, etc. Now, step three is probably the crux because it's describing SSRDs in the context of the mind-body connection. This is an area where images and metaphors really, really help. We're going to include some in our tip sheets on the pathway, but one that I like to use is the metaphor of a smoke detector. So the way this image goes is that the pain is our body's smoke detector, and it's meant to signal danger. And you can tell families that this is how we survived as a species and how we learned to not keep our arms in an open fire and to run away from tigers. If it hurts, we should pay attention to it. It's Mm -hmm. a really important feature of our nervous system. But sometimes a smoke detector goes off even if the danger it's meant to signal isn't there. And we've all experienced this in our kitchen when we've burned a pizza, for example. And pain can malfunction the same way and send signals to your brain signaling a danger when there is none. The signal and the pain are real, but the danger they're meant to signal may not be. So that was sort of the third step. And step four is describing the role of triggers and risk factors. So every patient is unique and has what you might call their own somatic symptom recipe. And that's a term I borrowed from Rachel Zafnis, who's this awesome pain psychologist at UCSF, who I heard on another podcast recently. And so 
things like stress and poor sleep and lack of exercise, lack of well-being, anxiety, those are all common ingredients and amplifiers of somatic symptoms, but they don't all have the same impact on every patient. And one thing you might hear from parents from time to time is, you know, my child is just a kid. They don't have stress, so that can't be the cause. And I think when this comes up, it's really important to communicate to families and patients that somatic symptom disorders are not stress diseases, and they're often not caused by stress alone. But stress is one of the really important amplifiers of the experience of mm. symptoms, and it's also a consequence of experiencing distressing symptoms that remove you from function and activities. And so stress may not be the cause, but it can become its own stressor to experience these symptoms. Almost getting to the end of this, mm -hmm. uh, next step I would say is depending on where the family is at on their diagnostic journey, it can be important to acknowledge that somatic symptoms can be ruled in as, as opposed to ruled out. And so if a family is still pursuing diagnostic workup for unexplained medical symptoms that you as the provider suspect are somatic, you can introduce this concept I really love called the concept of walking two paths. And I have to give credit to that to, to our amazing colleague, Andrea Chapman, who's a psychiatrist at the BC Children's Hospital in Vancouver. And this is the concept that while a family may still be exploring diagnostic modalities for symptoms that we haven't discovered the reason for yet, they might still be on a diagnostic path, so to speak, they can also start working on the tools that we know work for the component of symptoms that are somatic based on the on history and exam. And finally, last point I'll make, and this sort of applies to all of it, it doesn't really fit neatly anywhere else. I, I'll file it under the rubric of just be a nice person. It's, mm -hmm. I can't overstate how far you can get with families by building rapport. Mm -hmm. And if you think about these kids that have somatic symptoms, they've really often been dealing with this for weeks or months, sometimes years, and haven't gotten a lot of positive reinforcement from our healthcare network about who they are as people and individuals. And yet children with somatic symptoms often have a lot of really great qualities that in other contexts would be worth really praising and applauding. Mm -hmm. They might, for example, have really accurate memories. They might be very detail-oriented and have superb recall and tracking of their symptoms. I mean, some of them, if you ask them, can tell you where they were, what they were wearing, what they ate for lunch, the day their symptoms started. Right. And so all of these qualities and strengths clearly aren't helping them with their somatic symptoms, but they are qualities that we would applaud in other contexts, like when it comes to schoolwork, for example. And I think you can get really far by telling families and patients that their children's brains are incredible and have some really strong qualities. And that is both the reason that sometimes those qualities can be maladaptive and cause perseverance on symptoms, but also the reasons their brains are gonna be able to learn how to get better. Sorry, that was long. No, that was fantastic. And I really loved hearing how you walked through those different communication tips. Are those things that are specifically outlined in the new clinical pathway? Yeah, they are. So, you know, I, I get a little wordy and I expand it a bit, but each of those rubrics is going to have a sort of short description of um, of, of how we talk about these things, along with a couple sort of um, easy scripting tips that you can use on the go. 
And um, as far as the metaphors go to describe the different aspects of how somatic pain or somatic symptoms work and their treatment, there are going to be a sort of expanded hyperlinks that the user can click and sort of get a, a sense of what these different metaphors are. The smoke detector is, is just one of the many. I love that. And there's a frame shift here, I think, for some of us who trained a while ago uh, in terms of SSRDs being a diagnosis of exclusion versus inclusion. And I really like how you're moving us from saying that it's not a diagnosis of exclusion. You don't have to be fully through a diagnostic workup to make this diagnosis. And that that phrase that you shared with us about patients walking two paths, I think is really powerful for people to keep in mind. So I'm just calling attention to that for the listeners to really remember that one, because I think it's such a key part of what we're talking about today. So the other thing that I think listeners will be interested in is that SSRDs rarely require an inpatient admission. And although you're a hospitalist and you're usually more focused on the inpatients, for us primary care providers out there who might have a patient with an SSRD in clinic, I know that one of the first steps in treatment might be cognitive behavioral therapy, because as you mentioned before, cognitive behavioral therapy links together people's feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. And that is one of those keys to working through some of the somatic symptoms and the ways that you mentioned, like the attention to detail that might be healthy in one setting and isn't healthy in this setting. That's something that cognitive behavioral therapy can help work through with patients. But what are some of the other first steps in treatment that we as primary care providers might be able to help refer patients to? Uh, yeah, great question. And thanks for acknowledging that uh, I'm not a primary care doctor because my caveat was going to be that I don't want to overstep my bounds. I've, <laughs> I haven't worked in primary care in a long time, and I'm not confronted on a personal level with the time challenges and the realities of primary care. But having acknowledged that, what I think I can say confidently is that the somatic symptom conversation is best had if it's had early in a course. And even if that is the most difficult and challenging part, it can also be the most useful and rewarding in the long term. And that is something that a primary care doctor, especially one with an established relationship with a patient and a family, can be really instrumental in. Mm -hmm. Now, if that conversation is successful, and it usually is at least to some extent because something is better than nothing, and, and right now a lot of the time patients are not getting it at all, the next step is to really explain the importance of seeking therapy for somatic symptom disorders and that return to function will usually come before the resolution of symptoms. That's a really mm. important piece to reinforce. Now, the tools that are helpful for this are going to depend on the level of disability, and they have to be tailored to some extent. So for people within our health network who will have access to you know, our EMR, our pathway is going to contain letter templates for school, for school counselors, and for patients therapists with recommendations for accommodations by level of disability. And alongside with that, referrals to physical therapy and occupational therapy, and as you mentioned, psychology for CBT are really valuable. But one caveat here is that the referral needs to contain information to the therapist about the goals we're trying to achieve. Mm. And this is why this care needs to be really multidisciplinary and collaborative. One of the big problems with SSRD management that patients often experience is that without good communication between different team members on the team, 
some therapists may not actually realize that the medical team is comfortable with a somatic diagnosis and is asking to focus on, say, CBT or anxiety management of symptoms. And remember that, you know, if this diagnosis is confusing for us, it's probably really confusing for physical and occupational therapists who may not have had training on, you know, the medical pieces necessary to rule out serious illness. And so sometimes we get patients show right back up in the ED because they went to the psychologist who didn't get any communication from our teams Mm -hmm. and who was uncomfortable managing without knowing that, you know, serious things had been ruled out. And that can really be addressed with warm handoffs and and good communication as, as hard as it is to do. So I think primary care doctors have the absolute hardest job of anyone on this team because they carry both the burden of making the diagnosis as well as having the conversation and all of that while trying to maintain a usually valued and trusted relationship with patients and families. But it's also a really privileged position. And I think the primary care doctor can probably be the biggest difference maker in the course of this disorder and potentially save a patient and family, you know, months to years of of suffering that could have been alleviated if this is done early. Well, thank you for acknowledging our role and for those kind words. Again, though, you're keying in on how important communication is at all levels of this diagnosis. On that note, I've had some parents tell me that they've struggled with how to communicate with their child when they have an SSRD diagnosis. For example, I've had parents say things like, I understand that my child has pain, but I'm also trying to encourage them to maintain that level of daily functioning that they need, such as doing things like going to school or attending important social events with the family. And so it's hard sometimes for us to counsel parents about how much they kind of push their child sometimes versus how often they allow them to step back and take a break due to their pain. And what are some tips that you can offer us in terms of advising parents about how they can talk to their child about their somatic symptoms and the suffering that they're experiencing while also trying to move them forward in their treatment plan? Yeah, this is a really tough one and definitely something that I'm sure all of us that engage in these conversations on a regular basis have heard quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Each situation is unique as always, but what I usually tell families and caregivers is that, you know, first and foremost, the, the symptoms are real and the fact that they might not correspond to anything we can see on a scan or, or that we can treat with a pill doesn't change that. And so that means that the sympathy the parents experience is really warranted. Their Mm -hmm. child is truly suffering and wanting to honor that is not the wrong feeling. Mm -hmm. And from the standpoint of us as providers trying to apply our philosophy to the familial dynamic, wanting to honor the parents' feelings of how difficult this is to balance is also something that we should do. But even though wanting to acknowledge the child's suffering is the correct impulse, it's also true that quote unquote, supporting the child by by allowing them to withdraw from activities and function is exactly the most counterproductive thing you can do in helping the child get better since practicing function is really the only way the symptoms will eventually recede. Right. And so what that means for the parents is that they have to walk this emotional tightrope of validating their child's symptoms while also keeping some of their own worries and suffering internalized, at least in front of their child. And I think this is where acknowledgement and redirection can be really helpful. So for a parent to say, for example, you know, I'm sorry you're hurting right now. You're safe and this will get better. Let's go for a walk or do a puzzle or watch a movie or do a breathing exercise or, you know, whatever tips and strategies have been effective in that particular 
patient, it's a really helpful tool to acknowledge and redirect. Well, thank you for all of the amazing communication tips that you've offered us. And you've really helped me rethink some of my prior training on SSRDs and how I approach them. So I can imagine, though, that months from now, I might be with a patient who has an SSRD and I'll be thinking, what was that? pearl that Sam taught me in the podcast. So I know now that I can reference the new clinical pathway, and I'm excited about that. And it's a place that I can go for all of those pearls. So how do you imagine that primary care providers will be able to use this pathway? And why would I go to it? And what kind of resources will you have there for me? Sure. So I think the greatest strength of our pathway is going to sort of be that reinforcement and mental model that is so easy to slip away if you don't practice these conversations regularly, as well as the consistent language and messaging around somatic symptom disorders. You know, there was a, a really fascinating Canadian study that showed that somatic complaints were responsible for about a quarter of primary care visits and healthcare costs wow. in Canada. And yet we still don't have a widespread unified model to approach and, and deal with these really debilitating issues. Mm -hmm. So with this pathway, we're hoping to empower providers to trust their instincts and, and validate wanting to do right by their patients. One thing we didn't touch on in this conversation is the often unhelpful role of diagnostic testing mm -hmm. that can actually worsen a cycle of over-medicalization that we're complicit in as providers mm -hmm. through wanting to do the right thing. And I wanna be careful here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't order tests to look for things you're worried about. What I am saying is that you probably shouldn't convince yourself that you're sending just one more test in order to reassure a family, because the truth is it, it rarely does, or it rarely does for very long. Mm -hmm. And so this pathway should also help providers feel empowered to have conversations about you know the utility or, or lack thereof of additional testing in a given situation, which is something we hear from primary care providers a lot is, you know, it's just easier to send that patient for a scan than to have to have this whole long conversation. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to the actual tangible resources this pathway will have, we've put together something we're calling a, a somatic symptom care bundle. And the idea of that is to help do some of the heavy lifting of, of reinforcing these conversations providers have had with concrete examples and resources. So the bundle is gonna include letter templates for schools and for therapists, as well as patient family education documents on somatic symptom disorders, as well as symptom management strategies, as well as a list of outside resources, some workbooks, some books, some podcasts that families might find helpful until they do find a therapist, because sometimes that's not easy to find right away. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so glad that your team has put together those resources for us and I'm very excited that we have that available. Now, we've talked about a lot today, and I'm wondering what some of your top takeaways are for primary care pediatricians. And I'll say first, one of the big takeaways that I'm taking from all of this is that SSRDs do not need to be a diagnosis of exclusion. And so thank you for teaching me that. And I'd love to hear what some of your top takeaways are. Awesome. Thank you. You know, you and I have one of the same top takeaways. <laughs> um, so I'll start there. Somatic symptom disorders can be ruled in. They're mm -hmm. not rule out diagnoses. They can coexist with organic medical diseases or exist on their own. They might not follow the rules of pathophysiology we learned in med school, 
But somatic symptom disorders share common themes with each other. And fortunately for us, they all respond to some of the same treatments. Mm -hmm. CBT is like physical therapy for the brain and the nervous system. It's evidence-based and it works. That's really takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, maybe to reinforce some of this for how you think of it as a provider is somatic symptoms are real and we all experience them. And to paraphrase another quote from Rachel Zafnis, the pain psychologist at UCSF, you know, if you think it's patients versus doctors, then think again, because <laughs> somatic symptoms and pain are coming for all of us, and mm -hmm. we'll all be patients at some point in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing this can make it easier for us as providers to feel some sympathy for our patients and families. And then the last takeaway I have is that good, honest, and clear communication is really the cornerstone of somatic symptom diagnosis and the start to treatment, and it's absolutely essential to remission. And that means both communication with the patient and family, as well as communication between members of the interdisciplinary team. You know, there was this recent study that showed that patients and families who accepted the diagnosis of somatic symptoms had an almost 20-fold complete remission rates compared to families and patients who didn't. Wow. And increasing that acceptance really can only happen if families are receiving clear and consistent messaging from members of their healthcare team. But I have to emphasize that these conversations take practice, just like any mm -hmm. other conversation we've learned to have as providers, like breaking bad news or taking a confidential social history. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of iterations to become comfortable. And so don't get discouraged if the first couple conversations you have are, are rocky at the start. Hopefully some of our communication tips are gonna help you get there faster, but you know, something is better than nothing. And if you're at least trying to have this conversation, you're gonna do so much more for these families. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that point. I think so often we think that we're either good communicators or bad communicators, and there's just people who are really gifted at it. Obviously, you are one of those gifted people, but communication is also a learned skill. And so this is something, as you mentioned, that we can practice and improve upon if it's not already something that we feel naturally gifted in. And I think things like your clinical pathway help provide that framework for communication that's so important. And take those few minutes before you have a conversation with a patient who you think has an SSRD to practice what you're going to say, use some of these resources on the clinical pathway so that you can walk into that conversation more prepared and know that it will get easier every time you do it. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. And we hope everyone learned a little bit more about SSRDs and accesses our clinical pathway so that we can help improve the care for our patients. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 